Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is June 9th, 2020, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Teacher, Teacher, Tell Me How to Do It, Diagnose a Pulmonary Embolism. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. He's also an avid FOMID supporter and producer through various online outlets, including being a faculty member on the SGEM. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris. Thanks, Ken. Hey, listen, you had the best grand rounds virtually over Zoom the other day. I saw it. I saw the post. Tell the audience what you did for the Zoom meeting. Yeah, so I have a little bit of a misspent youth and uh, watched Top Gun one too many times in my teens. So I had to buy all the all the gear, authentic Nomex flight suits, authentic dress whites, khakis, etc., and decided to do my uh, ground rounds from home in full flight suit with uh, Top Gun background. Oh, switching to guns. <laughs> Too close for missiles, switching to guns. Chester's dead. Yeah, you were in a 4G, 4G inverted dive with a big 28. We were about two meters. No, I think it was about a meter and a half. And the, the classic quote from that is, permission to buzz the tower? <laughs> Negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. Well, we better start this podcast. All right, so uh, give us a case. All right, a 63-year-old female presents to the emergency department with chest pain for the past eight hours. It is pleuritic, worse with certain movements and associated with some shortness of breath. Her vital signs are within normal limits and oxygen saturation is 95% on room air. An ECG, chest X-ray, and troponin are all within normal limits and she has no calf swelling or tenderness. She does have a previous history of DVT and PE 12 years ago after returning from a transatlantic flight. She's also been doing more work around the house and lifting the past few weeks because of COVID and she has nothing better to do. So she has some mild chest wall tenderness on palpation. The remainder of her Wells criteria are unremarkable. How do you proceed in evaluating this patient for pulmonary embolism? Well, as you know, Chris, pulmonary embolism, it's a common ED diagnosis with an estimated 1% to 2% of all patients presenting in the United States to an emergency department undergoing a CT for suspected pulmonary embolism. However, less than 10% of these scans actually show or confirm a pulmonary embolism. Now, we've covered the topic of PE frequently on the SGM, and I'm thinking it's got to be in the top three, along with thrombolysis for acute ischemic stroke and sepsis management. Yeah, I think there are at least five or six podcasts previously on PE, maybe even seven. There are multiple validated risk stratification tools to evaluate for PE and reduce inappropriate testing, including the PERC score, the Wells score, the YEARS algorithm, and D-dimer testing. There have also been more recent adjustments to D-dimer threshold based on clinical pretest probability as calculated by a trichotomized Wells score. Unfortunately, clinician uptake of these validated tools has been incomplete with some ED studies suggesting a quarter of patients who warrant no laboratory or imaging studies still receive testing. Low-value testing increased costs, ED length of stay, and subject patients to unnecessary ionizing radiation and risk of anaphylaxis from intravenous contrast dye. Moreover, false positive CT scans are common and estimated between 10 and 26%. 
resulting in unnecessary anticoagulation and risk to patients. And ultimately, this can lead to over-testing, over-diagnosing, and over-treating of PE. The American Board of Internal Medicine started the project called Choosing Wisely to try and mitigate this problem. The SGEM looked at this initiative on an SGEM Extra, and the American College of Emergency Physicians is part of the Choosing Wisely program and has a number of recommendations. One of these recommendations is on CT scans for ruling out PE. They have encouraged physicians to, and I quote, avoid CT pulmonary angiography in emergency department patients with a low pre-test probability of pulmonary embolism and either a negative pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria or a negative D-dimer. Now, there is something called the Right Care Alliance, and it was established in 2015. Certainly, patients at times need less care, but also at times they need more care. And this group, this Right Care Alliance, is trying to advocate for that Goldilocks zone. Not too much, not too little, just right. So Chris, what's the clinical question for today's podcast? What are the barriers and facilitators to the uptake of evidence-based practice in the emergency department evaluation for pulmonary embolism? And the reference? Westifer et al. Provider perspectives on the use of evidence-based risk stratification tools in the evaluation of pulmonary embolism, a qualitative study from Academic Emergency Medicine, June 2020. And it's right there in the title. This is a qualitative study, and I believe this is the first qualitative study we've done on the SGEM after eight years. So clearly it will be the best qualitative study we've ever done on the SGEM. And so we had to modify the PICO for that, and so we have population interest, and context, as opposed to the usual population, intervention, control, or comparator, and outcome. So Chris, what was the population? Emergency physicians. And what was the interest? Use of evidence-based risk stratification tools. And the context? The evaluation of acute pulmonary embolism. Now, I don't know if SGMers have actually been able to perceive just how excited I am today. I am trying to tamp it down and hold it so I just don't fanboy too much. But this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, and it's my great pleasure to introduce someone who I hold in tremendous regard, an amazing physician and person too, Dr. Lauren Westifer. She's an emergency medicine physician practicing in Massachusetts and an avid FOMED producer, great public speaker, and just all-round awesome person. Welcome to the SGM, Lauren. Ken, Chris, so happy to be here. I'm excited to see y'all again. And combine my two passions, implementation science and pulmonary embolism and foam. Wait, no, that's three. That's three. And now we got to come up with five. So two more. One is, I just want to hear you say y'all. I just love hearing the y'all. It's just, <laughs> it just flows. I don't know why all y'all like it so much. <laughs> yeah, y'all like it so much. Oh, I know. Number five is that you introduced me years ago to a certain drink that I really like. And we'll leave it at that. You're welcome. I don't know what drink she introduced you to. I'm very curious now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You've got my, my curiosity peaked. So, Lauren, welcome. We have both had the pleasure of working with you on multiple projects over the years at conferences, interacting over Twitter. I remember reading The Short Coat, and now I still listen to you on Foamcast. Thanks for being on the show. Always my pleasure. Yeah, I read Shortcoat, and you were one of the 
first guest skeptics back in season number one, eight years ago on the SGEM. So bring the SGEMers up to speed. Here we are in 2020. It doesn't have to be about COVID. In fact, I'd appreciate it if it wasn't about COVID. What have you been up to lately? COVID and research, COVID research and family. You know, it's, it's, it's medicine, research, family. And of course I had to say COVID. I had to, had to bait you a little bit. But, But not necessarily in that order, correct? Uh, no, a family and then medicine and research and COVID. It just all blends together, doesn't it? It's a certain stage of life. Well, we're going to ask you to give the conclusions to your paper from the abstract itself before we get into this quality checklist that we have. Our findings suggest that common barriers exist to the use of risk stratification tools in the evaluation of pulmonary embolism in the emergency department and provide insight into where to focus efforts for future implementation endeavors. Overall, provider-level factors such as risk avoidance and lack of knowledge of the tools dominated as barriers, while intersetting factors were identified as facilitators. Future efforts to improve evidence-based diagnosis of PE should focus on implementation strategies targeting these domains. We had to look up a checklist for qualitative research, and Chris, you looked around and found one that had how many questions? Double my favorite number, 10. So the listeners may not be familiar with these questions, so let's run through them. The first question as a quality checklist for qualitative studies, and it's called CASP, C-A-S-P. First question is, was there a clear statement of the aims of the research? Yes, there was. Is the qualitative methodology appropriate? Yes, it is. Was the research design appropriate to address the aims of the research? Yes. Was the recruitment strategy appropriate to the aims of the research? No. Uh, In this case, emails were sent to a purposive sample of physicians, many of whom were colleagues of the principal investigators, and thus there would be bias as to those physicians' potentially known practice patterns and potential responses. We do know that two physicians declined, and effort was made to have a cross-section with regards to experience in terms of years in practice, gender, and practice setting, academic versus community-based. Has the relationship between researcher and participants been adequately considered? Unsure. As before, the researcher was a colleague with with six of the 23 study participants, which will introduce some bias. Have ethical issues been taken into consideration? Yes, it meets correct standards for qualitative studies. Was the data analysis sufficiently rigorous? Yes, it was. Is there a clear statement of findings? Yes. And the 10th question, the final question for this qualitative quality checklist, how valuable is the research? So this is the big question. The external validity of this study is seriously questionable given the small number of participants and practice setting of four Northeastern United States emergency department settings. There may be generalizability to the American practice setting, but I question its applicability in Canada, Europe, the Anzacs, and other areas of the world. That said, there is value in recognizing what barriers and facilitators practicing physicians find for the use of any clinical decision-making or decision instrument. The same themes often emerge regardless of where you are in the world. For example, fear, anxiety, uncertainty, knowledge gaps, and medical legal risk are all barriers that need to be addressed when working up patients for any disease process. The study also identifies that physicians are more comfortable making decisions that are clearly aligned with institutional goals and policies, as well as in line with their colleagues' practice patterns. 
Audit and feedback was also identified as a helpful tool by some physicians in this study. Audit and feedback can be an extremely powerful tool if delivered well, and I will encourage those who are interested to read the following paper, which we'll quote in the show notes, but I just published with some colleagues a few months ago in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine, so there's a little bit of shameless self-advertising here. It covers critical elements of implementing an emergency department-based audit and feedback program. All right, that's the quality checklist. Let's run through the key results. They had 23 physicians, as you mentioned, from a total of 12 academic and community hospitals in New England were interviewed. Two potential participants did decline. Participants had a median of 14 years in practice, 48% practiced solely in an academic setting, 20% exclusively in a community setting, and the remaining 32 practiced in a combination of academic and community emergencies. Now, all providers reported some familiarity with the use of a risk stratification tool, particularly PERC in the workup of PE. The barriers were provider-level barriers to use of risk stratification tools centered on knowledge, belief about consequences, and emotions. Yeah, there was a lack of knowledge regarding validated cutoffs for the Wells score, lack of knowledge on the trichotomized Wells threshold, and most clinicians would only use a D-dimer for patients with a Wells score less than or equal to 3. Clinicians reported some confidence in the gestalt, I love that word, than risk stratification tools. They commonly reported that if a patient satisfied, quote, PE is the most likely diagnosis, end of quote, or there was a prior history of venous thromboembolism, Yeah, there were some pretty strong beliefs and beliefs about consequences of using the tools, particularly risk avoidance and fear of missing PE, were also common provider level barriers. Nearly all participants were unaware of existing professional guidelines on PE. Now, when it comes to facilitators, study participants reported facilitators primarily at the level of the institution setting. All providers felt that institutional support and a clear easy-to-follow algorithm endorsed by their hospital or group would facilitate their use of evidence-based approaches. This would also need to be easily accessible while on shift. They also felt this would provide perceived medical legal protection and establish a cultural norm of practice and cited peer pressure as a root cause to motivate them to change practice. Providers felt simplicity of PERC facilitated its use while the elements of Gestalt incorporated into Wells made it more challenging to use. Audit and feedback also emerged as an implementation strategy, noting that they would not want to be an outlier among their colleagues. All right, that covers the key results. It's time to talk nerdy. Yes, we have 10 nerdy questions for Dr. Westerfer about her study. So I'm going to start with number one, and that's feedback. Do these physicians receive data on their CTPE ordering rate for patients presenting with chest pain, shortness of breath, or other presenting complaints? Yeah, some of them do, not all of them. In fact, this is why we chose some of the centers that we did, is we looked at where some of this literature had been previously published and where we knew some of them had, for quite some time, received feedback um, on their CT ordering rates and their yield, and that's why we chose them. But not all sites did, because we wanted to sample from a diverse group 
of sites. And for example, some community and rural hospitals didn't really do that. Yeah, and that gives it a bit more robust nature of the study design when you have stuff like that. That was good. Yeah, with this, was there a pure comparator available? Like you see um, the median rates of CTPE ordering and that type of thing? So comparing Chris to Ken and Ken to Chris? If you're talking about looking at the sites where they did sort of give feedback to clinicians, yes, that was part of it, is they they had some benchmark as to where they performed with regard to their actual setting, but not necessarily a target. For example, if 2% of the, P, the CTs that you order are positive for PE, they didn't say, hey, we want you here. They just showed you where your colleagues were. So the third question was about U.S. population. Were all the citations listed in the article regarding CTPE ordering rates in American populations, or were there international ones as well? This is a great question. Um, There were international ones as well. For example, looking at the international scene, the U.S., not surprisingly, has the lowest CTPA yield. So for all the CTAs we order, very few of ours turn out to be positive for PE. But actually, Canada is not too far behind us in that. So North America globally is, is among the lower of the continent sort of scoring for PE yield. Australia, there's also quite a yield. And I cited some things from there where their hospitals average 9 to 25 percent. So huge ranges there. So even within countries, there can be a lot of range. A Canadian study that I cited, the median was about 9.1 percent, which isn't too far off from many U.S. hospitals. Yeah, the fourth question is about external validity. So how do you think having data from New England could affect the external validity of your study? Or how do you think having data only from New England could affect the external validity of your study? Yeah, obviously that is a limitation. I mean, I I couldn't sample people from every country and and every state within the United States in different settings. Um, And and sort of when we designed the study, what we we wanted to do was kind of look at where they had tried to implement things and figure out why they failed. And it just happened that two of the main implementation strategies that had been used were done at hospitals in New England. And so we specifically targeted them because we wanted to get some feedback on the barriers and facilitators to doing that. So it is a major limitation when kind of taking this into account, we did want to see where we fell, where New England fell in regards to utilization of CTA for PE and yield. And there's a study by Vinkatesh et al. where they looked at the geographic variation in this. And really, we're sort of middle of the road for both in Massachusetts and uh, and Connecticut. And so the, it sort of, I think, is fairly balanced as much as a very limited qualitative study of 23 physicians can be. Well, that's a nice segue into question number five, because you knew six of the 23 participants as colleagues in the study How do you think your selection of participants affected your results if you think they were affected them at all? I mean, I think it would be impossible for there to not be some effect there. And I I don't know it's necessarily whether they're a colleague of mine or not, but that's one thing with qualitative research is when you set off to do it is you have to think about how am I presenting myself? What do people know about me and how might that affect how they answer questions? For all kinds of biases, I mean, they they may want to satisfy me to give me things that I want. They may want me to perceive them a, a certain way or give a certain amount of um, knowledge. So I think that's certainly, you know, a potential for introducing 
some bias there. We did look at this. So first of all, we looked at what we expected to find in when we were piloting the interview guide. Uh, we interviewed people both at my institution and people I didn't know and really didn't find much of a difference there. And when we examined the, the themes in those six people compared to other people, there wasn't a major difference there. And in fact, I was I was really heartened that people would tell me things that I think that they knew didn't jive with my own practice pattern. Um, and it, it kind of made me feel feel like I was getting data that was authentic, which which made me feel nice. However, that is obviously a limitation with qualitative research that that is very clear. Let's talk about knowledge translation. So the Wells study is 20 years old. We know that it can take 17 years for 14% of high quality clinically relevant information to reach the patient. If knowledge translation has not reached these physicians after 20 years, what leaks in the leaky pipe model would you suggest we fix going forward to achieve this knowledge translation? I mean, that was sort of the aim of this, this paper is we, we have these validated tools and why are people not using them? And some of them comes down to that, that fear and uh, beliefs. And some of those are really hard to change without kind of addressing some of the root issues. And one of the big ones that I actually didn't anticipate finding out of this study that was a major surprise is people don't seem to have adequate knowledge of like of the well score and know what the risk levels predict, what low predicts and intermediate and high predicts and what to do with it. And in fact, if you go online to some calculators, people still don't know what to do with some of the information from popular online calculators. And so that was a major surprise and I think a pretty significant target for this because if you don't know what the results from something are supposed to mean, you can't actually use it in practice. So I think that that was uh, definitely one uh, issue. Awareness wasn't an issue. Everyone knew WellScore, everyone knew Perks. So people know these things, they're just really not using them um, in, in a way that sort of they were designed to be used. So the first leak in the leaky pipe model is awareness. And so people are aware it's just further down in the pipe where the leaks are coming. Question number seven is about pregnancy. Pulmonary embolism can be a challenge to diagnose, but adding that additional layer of pregnancy certainly raises the diagnostic challenge. Was diagnosing PE in pregnancy considered in this study? Yeah, and this was a frustration that was voiced and and one of the examples that was given often with regards to like we had a question that was what influences situations when you use risk stratification tools versus times you don't. And and people were like, well, pregnancy because I don't even know how I, everyone works it up a different way. I talked to one person, they want me to do it a different way. But one important thing to note is when we were doing this, nearly the entire time we were conducting the interviews, no validated risk stratification tools for pregnancy existed, and guidelines varied whether they said it's okay to order a D-dimer or not. And years in pregnancy, the initial Vanderpool study was published towards the very end of conducting the interview, so it hadn't even come out at this time to give people guidance. Yeah, the other thing I wonder was, was patient satisfaction influencing decision-making discussed in this? Absolutely. We had a specific question dedicated to this because I thought this is going to be a major driver. Like who doesn't want to see to you and come to the emergency department? And we asked, does the patient's perspective or their preferences factor into whether you do or don't use risk stratification tools? And it, it turned out it wasn't a major theme in our study. It's just like I thought medical legal risk was going to be just all everyone talked about and everyone wanted tort reform. It didn't really turn out to be a big thing. Unlike say like head injury and CT or back pain and imaging, 
clinicians really perceived less direct pressure from patients about ordering CTs, maybe because it's not on their radar or something like that. My last question is about overdiagnosis and overtreatment. Did you discuss this issue and specifically the anticoagulation for subsegmental PEs resulting in potential patient harm being greater than the risk of the PE itself? Can this like almost never emerge spontaneously? In fact, I think only in one interview did this did this sort of come up. Now, when I ask clinicians about what might change their practice, what might influence them and sort of facilitate their use, one thing that we would often talk about is if you found out that a, that a certain percentage of your uh, CTs that said they were positive for PE were actually false positives, and you were initiating anticoagulation and the downstream harms of that are subsegmental, would that change how you felt? And people said, well, sort of, but I would much rather be safe and treat everyone. So that was interesting, also somewhat disheartening. My last question is, what's your personal practice with, with regards to working at PE? Oh, this is, this is so exciting. Y'all are giving me a platform to discuss PE unfiltered. Now I'm sure Ken will filter it. So I, what, I just want to take a minute to talk about one of the biggest things that I learned from this study that I'd love to get out there. And it's a misunderstanding that's been perpetuated a lot, even in the foam world. And it's how we look at the well score and, and the use of the dichotomized and trichotomized well. So wells can either be divvied up as low probability, PE unlikely, less than four and a half, so four or less, or above that is PE likely, or it could be low, intermediate, and high risk. Now, some people think that if you're low risk wells and you're in that zero to two, that those people you can de-dimer. But if you're in the intermediate range, then maybe you should just go straight to, straight to CT. However, guidelines since 2015 have said, hey, you can de-dimer those patients too if your well's intermediate. So if you have a well score of six or less, you can order a D-dimer on those patients. And this is something that was that was controversial um, in a recent, uh, was, was described as controversial in a recent huge CME podcast that I was really shocked and, and kind of surprised about because this is old news. But I think that this is really important because this expands the utility of a D-dimer. We talk about how D-dimers are overused. But this is the population where they're going to be the highest yield is those people that maybe you think it really is a PE and they're tachycardic, but they're not tachycardic, cancer, malignancy, and you think it's a PE. They don't satisfy every Wells criteria. So for me, I use that. So I uh, use the D-dimer in patients that I think very well may have a PE. So a well score of six or less is when I D-dimer. So I use that trichotomized threshold of six or less to D-dimer a patient. Of course, I use PERC if, if they are low risk for PE, so I can just avoid the D-dimer and avoid CT in general. And then what I do is I use a risk stratified D-dimer approach. So everyone, I think, well, both of y'all are familiar with the year's criteria. A lot of people are simplified well score. So I will use that frequently, but in a lot of patients, it really doesn't allow you to get as much. So often kind of a priori would be like, I really don't think that this patient has a PE, but they're PERC positive and they have too many things where it really could be a PE. I'm going to get the D-dimer and then I'll accept the threshold of one. Usually that applies to me in like a sign out from a patient who the D-dimer is already ordered in. And uh, I really like the the PEG study that came up, the risk stratification in um, it from Canada where they have a risk stratified D-dimer where if it's that intermediate range of uh, four or less, then you could accept a threshold of one. So I find that really appealing. I'm waiting for somebody else to validate it. 
But I think that that is really promising, and especially in the United States where we overwork up these pe- these people, I think that's going to be a game changer. So I use that. I also year, use years in pregnancy, um, and at my hospital, we've been doing that for quite some time. Yeah, that's awesome. That's actually like pretty much exactly the same as my practice, and I incorporate the PIGHT study completely into practice pretty much already as well. I find it shocking that you have been handed over a patient who has a D-dimer pending because I haven't seen that happen in seven years of practice. Oh, really? If somebody handed me over a D-dimer pending, I would slap them in the face and tell them to wait till it came back and do their job. Our, our sign-out culture is, I, you know, I work at a place where physician wellness is really highly sort of valued. So yeah. uh, especially you know, if a patient comes in and, and their workup is begun and then things become more clear. I mean, if somebody orders a D-dimer, usually they'll want to follow it up. But, you know, there are times when I'd rather just not, I'd, I'd like to make that decision as to whether we order the CT and I use it as an excuse to cancel it if it's already been ordered. Yeah, don't worry. I only work seven hour shifts. Physician wellness is great in Calgary, but it's <laughs> it's like the running joke that we always make in Calgary is like, I ordered a bunch of D-dimers and now I'm signing over to you. So I, I want to clarify, though, something you said, Lauren, just because uh, different people may have different lab values. You kept saying one and other people have lab values that uh, report that as a thousand. Correct. And so, you know, we'll get D-dimers of 0.5 will be the 500 cutoff or 0.5. You're talking about one or 1000. Yeah. You know, like if I could fix several things in the workup of PE, if I could fix three things, one would be D-dimer units because there's the FEU, there's the DDU. It's reported in all kinds of different units. And most of them are exactly the like they convert to the same thing. Um, so the, it's frustrating. But yes, so 0.5 or 500 on some assays, or one is a thousand on some assays. And you, it's unfortunate, you just gotta kinda know which assay you use for D-dimer. And I think that if you're allowed to order a D-dimer, you should, you should have to take a test to know that. <laughs> yeah, and so I just wanted to clarify it for the listeners in case they um, got that uh, message out the wrong way and they got a D-dimer back that said one, and they didn't understand that that meant 1,000 from where you were coming from, or 1,000 from where they were. And so both of you are using Wells, Perk, Pegged, Years. One other question, though, that I had for you, are you age adjusting then your D-dimer as well at times? So there have been studies that look at the the value of age adjusting versus years, et cetera. And if I'm using a value, if I'm going to accept, you know, a patient is low risk by years, I will accept the most liberal threshold that I can. And whether that's the age adjusted or whether that's the years or pegged, that's what I'm going to do. If I have a 73-year-old whose dimer is 0.76 or 760, I'm probably going to, you know, or it's just over that. I'm going to years them if it's under one. Yeah. And so that's what I was getting at. Which clinical decision instrument do you use? And are you flexible on the instrument to get the result that you want? <laughs> oh, of yes. course. I mean, part <laughs> of this flexible. is understanding that that patients with an intermediate probability to low probability of PE, especially where the prevalence is low, which it is in the United States, which I think is important to know. The, the practice pattern where you work, and in the, I work in the United States, and it's low, and we, we work up way too many of these patients. And so I know that I can, that that, that is going to stand where I work versus, you know, uh, uh, a more conservative threshold 
there's really not much trade-off there. And usually it's a negligible amount of points. It's, you know, uh, 0.10 points or 10 points on a scale. Well, that ends our nerdy questions. So it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions, Chris. Yeah, we agree with the author's conclusions. Well, can you give us an SGEM bottom line then? Use an evidence-based decision tool to help in the workup of patients suspected of having a PE. And can you resolve the case you presented? So you use an evidence-based tool to calculate the patient's Wells score as 1.5, given she has had a previous DVT and pulmonary embolism 12 years ago. But you do not feel that PE is the most likely diagnosis. She is PERC positive because of her age, so you perform a D-dimer that returns negative at 0.47. At this point, you reassure the patient and tell her she most likely has musculoskeletal chest pain and to try some heat, acetaminophen, or ibuprofen for pain. If she notices that she is becoming short, more short of breath, has uncontrolled pain, or is feeling syncopal, she should return to the emergency department. Otherwise, you su suggest she follows up with her primary care provider. And so how are you going to take this qualitative study and apply it clinically then, Chris? Well, I'm going to use the Wells score and PERC rule in the workups of suspected PE and also continue using the years and PEGED studies to adjust my D-dimer thresholds. And how are you going to translate this information at the bedside? What are you going to tell the patient? So I'll tell the patient that after reviewing your story, your physical exam findings and tests that we've done, I think the most likely cause of your chest pain is muscular, and it's very unlikely to be a dangerous or life-threatening cause. I suggest you try some heat and pain medication like acetaminophen or ibuprofen for the pain and follow up with your primary care provider. Come back if you're having significantly more pain, shortness of breath, or feeling lightheaded or faint. Time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week winner was Drew Schuling. He knew that sensors are the fancy devices often used by Catholic priests to burn incense. Chris, what's the question this week? Which of the pulmonary embolism risk stratification algorithms has also been validated in pregnancy? If you know the answer, then send it to thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode on provider perspectives of risk stratification tools in the evaluation of pulmonary embolism? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Lauren and her team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Also, don't forget those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage to get CME credit for this podcast and article. We will put the process on the SGEM blog. Well, thanks, Chris, for doing another SGEM hot off the press. Thanks very much to you too, Ken. And I look forward to the time where we can get together and actually have the Top Gun Maverick party because every SGEM listener and person in the FOMED world is invited to my place to watch Top Gun Maverick for an epic Top Gun party. I'll be there. Oh, I know. And you'll be wearing your lily whites, won't you? I will be. I'll be wearing a nice fresh set of dress whites. And I'll be wearing uh, cut-off jean shorts and oiling up and playing beach volleyball. <laughs> in my dad body, it'll be ugly. And thank you, Lauren. Uh, it's great to have you back on the S-Gem. Thanks, Ken and Chris. I really appreciate it. 
I know you're probably trying to hold back your accent after we gave you a little bit of a hard time over the y'all. So I'm wondering if now you can channel it all in to the SGEM tagline. Sure. Here's my best New England, Massachusetts accent. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if y'all heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Teacher, teacher, tell me how you do it. It looks kind of easy like there was time to it, but they don't understand that the ruler will be the creator.